Amen. I'll invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4. We've been uh, teaching a series on the greater one within. And um, we are using as a, a text scripture, a beginning point, this uh, last part of the verse, John, 1 John 4, 4. It says, You are of God, little children, and, uh, and have overcome them. Now, them is a reference to evil spirits operating in the world. That he talks about it in some of the previous verses. You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, evil spirits, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. I want to point out some things this evening to get started um, that refer to and deal with the finality of the work of the Holy Spirit. What I mean by that is, notice there's no hint in what John is writing to probably his own converts in the region around Ephesus. Um, later in his life, he's 90-something years old. He knows he's not going to be here much longer. And so he writes to the church to comfort them, to encourage them, to give them whatever they might need to, to help overcome their situations. But notice that John is speaking by the Holy Ghost, and he says, you have overcome them. He's talking about evil spirits. He's talking representatively. Those evil spirits represent, in other words, all of the work of the devil. And he writes, by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, and says, you have overcome them. Now, there's no hint of you will someday. There's no reference or intimation of when we get to heaven, then we won't have a devil to deal with, and won't that be wonderful? And it will be. But notice he says by the Holy Ghost that they overcome now. You have overcome them because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Look with me over to uh, chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2. I think it's verse 20. I'll find it here in a second. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 20 he says, But you have an unction from the Holy One. And you know all things. Now, how many of us, well, I better change the way I'm about to say that. We all know somebody that thinks they know all things. But he's saying because of the work of the Holy Ghost within us, we know. Now, the knowing he's talking about has to do with truth versus error. He makes some mention of some verses previous and then uh, following these next few verses, he talks about the truth, of the uh, spirit of truth versus the spirit of error. Notice also in verse 27. He says, but, you, but the anointing which you have received of him abideth in you. Notice he said in verse 20 that we have an unction from the Holy One and that we know all things. Verse 27, but the anointing. The word anointing is the same word unction in verse 20. But the anointing which you have received of him abides in you. And you need not that any man teach you, but as the same anointing teaches you of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it has taught you, you shall abide in him. Now the unction and the anointing that he's talking about is the work of the Holy Ghost within. And again, he's, uh, well, I guess we better make this point so that somebody doesn't take it out of context and misunderstand what he's writing. He's not saying... Now, you've got something from the Holy Ghost that means you don't need teachers in the body of Christ. That's not what he's talking about. Ministry gifts are set in the body of Christ, set in the church until Jesus comes back. till we all come into the unity of the faith, and that will only be when Jesus returns for the church. So he's not saying you don't, need that, you don't have need of, of being ministered to. You don't need to pay attention to your pastor who's going to teach you the word or whoever it might be. But instead, he's talking about an inward knowing. He's talking about a finished work of the Holy Ghost. A finished work of the Holy Ghost in each and every one of them and in each and every one of us that gives us an inward witness, gives us a knowing within our spirits that which is true versus that which is error. Again, he doesn't say, now I want you to grow up and mature so that you can tell the difference between what's right and what's wrong. He said, you have an unction, you have an anointing from the Holy Ghost, you know now. Look with me over to Colossians, chapter 2, I believe it is. I want you to see something that Paul said along these same lines. We'll start in verse 8. Paul said, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the tradition of men and after the rudiments of the world, 
and not after Christ. He's referencing there the, uh, the work of the Jews. Many of the Jews in his day were trying to tear up the churches and uh, uh, destroy or at least diminish the work that Paul was doing, going from place to place as a missionary and creating new works, churches, get people saved, get them filled with the Holy Ghost, get them healed, whatever that was that they needed. And, of course, we know from the, uh, the story that's given to us in the, to the Galatians, what Paul wrote to the Galatians, we know that that's the pattern of the Jews. The pattern of the Jews was to come in and try to disrupt the operation of the churches and the foundation upon which it was found, uh, built by Paul himself in most cases by telling them and trying to put uh, the congregations in those churches that Paul had, had uh, begun by telling them that they still needed to keep the law of Moses. You remember when uh, Paul was dealing with the Galatians about that, he said, oh, stupid Galatians. The word foolish is, is uh, what's used in the King James, but it means stupid. He says, oh, you stupid people. You didn't get saved by the law. Why do you think you need to go back to it now? Well, he's talking about something very similar here. He's saying don't let anybody put you under burden by whatever law they think you're supposed to keep instead of just believing in Jesus. The just shall live by faith. For in him, notice let's keep reading now, for in him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He's saying in Jesus, he had the fullness of the Holy Ghost. He was the only one through which the Holy Ghost was working. He was the messenger of, of the, the covenant. He was the Messiah himself. And he said that in Jesus, in Jesus, indwelling Jesus, was the fullness of the Holy Ghost in bodily form. Now, I don't have any doubt that the Holy Ghost prompted him to, to write in that way to head off some of the... Uh, doctrine of the Gnostics that were after Paul went off the scene. But part of the Gnostic philosophy was that they believed Jesus was just an idea that wasn't really born in the flesh, but that it was just a story that God could get across what he wanted for his children or his people. But he heads that off. He said, in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, in bodily form. Now notice verse 10, and you are complete in him. And you are complete in him. Notice that phrase, complete in him. The word complete means to cram a net full. So that it leaves no room for anything else. Something being so full that it's about to burst at the seams. And you just can't get any, any more in there. But you are complete in him. Which is the head of all principality and power. You are complete in him. Folks, here's the point that I'm trying to get to. And I'll try to prove it with several verses of Scripture, additional verses of Scripture tonight from the Word. But really, we've already got enough. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. We've got three already. But the point I'm trying to make is this. You have everything you'll ever need right now at your disposal. You have everything you'll ever need because you're complete in him. You're filled up to the full. And I believe that's one of the reasons that Jesus told the uh, disciples after they were born again to wait in Jerusalem until they'd be endued with power from on high. I believe that's exactly what the Bible means when it's talking about being filled with the Spirit. You receive the measure of the Holy Ghost that makes you complete in him. Now, for those that are saved but not filled with the Holy Ghost, they're complete unto salvation but not under the power that God wants us to have to live our lives for him. So he told the disciples in Acts 1.8, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me in Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world. They're already saved. Their spirits have been made new, recreated in the image and likeness of God. They've been born again. But Jesus said, you need power. Now, if they needed power, what makes us think that we shouldn't need power too? Who's going to turn down God's offer for power? People don't realize that's what they're doing when they take sides against the word concerning the baptism of the Holy Ghost. But notice what work it's supposed to provide for us. It makes us complete in him. Now, one of the things that we have to keep in mind, I think, or would help us to keep in mind, is that the New Testament was written by people that were spirit-filled. 
every writer of the New Testament was spirit-filled. And there wasn't a controversy in that day about whether or not everybody is supposed to be filled or whether or not everybody will speak with tongues. That controversy hadn't arisen. There was one time when Paul went to Ephesus, his first time in Ephesus, he found the women down by the creek or river. And so he asked them, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? In other words, he's saying, well, you guys look like you're born again to me, by the way, you're living in your attitude toward God. But have you received the infilling or the baptism of the Holy Ghost? They said, we haven't heard about it. He said, under what then are you baptized? He's assuming, and rightly so, that anybody that's heard about Jesus and entered into the new birth, become a part of the family of God, surely they would have heard something about the Holy Ghost. Because even though some of the apostles specialized in certain areas of ministry, Acts chapter 8 tells about Philip going down to the city of Samaria and getting a whole bunch of people in that city saved. Then Peter and John came down after they heard that they'd been born again. They came down to minister the Holy Ghost to them. And, he did, and they did. So there may have been certain degrees or amounts of uh, specialization in certain areas of ministry. But Paul couldn't understand. How could you not have heard, by the, heard of the Holy Ghost if you're born again? Well, their answer, under what then are you baptized? They answered, we were baptized under John's baptism. And then Paul realizes what's going on. It's kind of an aha moment. He says, oh, okay, well, the reason you guys look and act like you're saved is because you believed in John who talked about the Messiah to come. But then he preached Jesus to him and got him filled with the Holy Ghost and they all spoke with tongues. So that wasn't, an, it wasn't two different options. I'm saved but not filled. Of course, you can't be filled with the Holy Ghost without first being saved. But Paul expected, and all the other apostles and the writers in the New Testament did too, expected that everybody would receive everything that God had for them. Well, wouldn't it be great if that was the case today? Well, what's the benefit of being filled with the Holy Ghost? Well, Paul just talks about being complete in him. Being complete in him. Where he said in Jesus, the fullness of the Godhead bodily indwelt him. He's not talking about just the life of God, a spirit that was without sin. Because remember, Jesus had to be anointed by the Holy Ghost in the Jordan River before he began his ministry. He was just as alive to God before the Holy Ghost came on him as he was afterwards. The only difference in the two conditions was that after he was baptized by John in the Jordan River, the Holy Ghost came upon him and he started doing miracles. But again, I want to make the point, you've got everything according to the Bible. You have everything that you will ever need. Ephesians 1.3 says, God has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. That means the same thing as what Paul wrote to the Colossians. He's saying you've got everything you ever need. Now, I think what happens to most of us is that we're looking for the Holy Ghost to work on the outside. We're looking for the Holy Ghost to respond to our prayers or our needs or whatever. Maybe our confession or whatever else we think is the best way to get him to work. And then he'll just start moving circumstances around like pieces on a chessboard to satisfy us or give us what we ask for. But God never works that way. He never works that way. He always works from the inside out, not the outside in. And I think so often we're caught up in the trap of thinking that our prayers will make God move in circumstances which in most cases is not the way that he operates. Usually our prayers will cause him to work in us and then we'll do something about the circumstances. And really, if you think of it in that light, remember God gave authority on the earth to man, not to the Holy Ghost. And so I think a lot of Christians, I know I've been guilty of this in times past, maybe you have as well. I think a lot of Christians are praying that the Holy Ghost will do something that we've been given authority to handle. And that's the help we want from the Holy Ghost. But turn with me to Luke chapter 17. I want you to see something here. Do you remember that Jesus told his disciples how to pray? They came to him. They said, teach us to pray. John the Baptist taught his disciples how to pray. We want you to teach us. So a part of what he said in, the, in what's known as the Lord's Prayer, is really the disciples' prayer, 
It's not a New Testament prayer, and it's not a good prayer for today. The principles are good. The principles are sound because they were given of Jesus. But the things that he said to pray for don't all apply under the new covenant after Jesus was raised from the dead. But one of the things that he taught his disciples was this. He said, pray, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. And then he defines it. Thy will be done in the earth just like it is in heaven. So Jesus understood And we won't take the time to go through all the scriptures. But Jesus understood that they knew that the kingdom of God had certain characteristics and elements attached to it. He sent the disciples out and told them to preach and heal the sick and to preach the kingdom of God has come or is near. We know from what the Bible says in Colossians chapter 1 that the kingdom of God has already come. It's what Jesus came to the earth to accomplish. It says we've been translated into the kingdom of his dear son, meaning Jesus. Well, what would the kingdom of Jesus be if not the kingdom of God? And again, the definition, the only definition that we're given of it is where the will of God is done in the earth just like it is in heaven. Now look at Luke chapter 17. Let's start reading. uh, Well, let's just start reading in verse 20. And when Jesus was demanded of the Pharisees, when the kingdom of God should come, when the kingdom of God should come, He answered them and said, The kingdom of God comes not with observation. Neither shall they say, Lo here or lo there. For behold, the kingdom of God is within you. Do you see that? Now, he's not saying the kingdom of God is in them. He's telling them how the kingdom of God is going to operate when he finishes his work and defeats Satan and takes back, strips Satan of his power and authority and takes back the keys of hell and death. And notice they fall into the same trap that we sometimes do. They're wanting to know, when is the kingdom of God coming? Now, why would they ask that? Why would their question not be, Jesus, we've heard you and your disciples preach a lot about the kingdom of God. And we know that the earth was created where man was given the opportunity to perform your will here on the earth prior to sin coming in and messing things up. Why are they not asking Jesus, what about this kingdom of God? What should we look for? How can we follow God to obtain it? Now, they're looking for an event. They're looking for a point in time where God does something from the outside in this natural realm to reestablish his kingdom. Now, reestablishing the kingdom of God would be reestablishing health and prosperity and peace and all the other characteristics of the life of God and the kingdom of God, wouldn't it? They were particularly interested in the kingdom of God because they believed it would set them free from Roman rule. They're chomping at the bit. When can we get rid of these Romans? When is God going to do something about them once and for all to deliver us like he said he would? So that we're not under the burdens that the Romans are imposing upon us. Now, I don't blame them for wanting that. I wouldn't want to be in that situation either, would you? But they're looking for something on the outside. They're looking for something in the natural realm. And Jesus says, that's not the place to find the kingdom of God. That's not the place to find the characteristics for the kingdom of God, like healing and blessing and prosperity and peace and so forth. He said, that's not how you find it. You're not going to find it in the outside. You're not going to find it in the natural realm, the physical realm. You're going to find it within. Now, when he talks about being within, he's got to be talking about the spirit of man, doesn't he? He's got to be talking about the new birth and the change that will occur when we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior. What else could it be? So he says, the kingdom of God doesn't come with observation. You're not going to be able to see the kingdom of God at work on the outside. You're supposed to see it work on the inside and take hold of it with the hand of faith. Now, why is that important? Because the only way that that could be possible is for us to be complete in him. Jesus is saying in very specific terms, He's saying that the kingdom of God, which will be purchased by his own blood, instituted at the resurrection, when he breathed on his disciples and said, receive the spirit of God. He's saying at that point, following the baptism of the Holy Ghost, I'm not trying to split hairs between saved and or filled with the Holy Ghost. It all is part of God's plan for the the people then and the people today. Everybody everywhere. 
So he's saying you can only take hold of the things that belong to the kingdom of God or things that are part of the kingdom of God by looking inside, not outside. Looking inside. I was praying a number of years ago, and we had a need in our church. There was a certain area that we felt like um, that we should shore up, add some things to, take away some things from, and so forth. And so I started praying. I started praying that God would send me somebody to fill a ministry position that I felt like we needed. Bring me the right person, Lord. And it was something about it. I just knew on the inside that that didn't make connection with God. John wrote to the church and said, we know that if we pray according to his will, he hears us. And if, we, if he hears us, then we know we have what we asked for. But I didn't, I didn't have any confidence that he was hearing me. And so finally, after a bit, I kept doing that, trying to, um, trying to make it happen. Maybe that's the best way to say it. Trying to make it happen through my faith and my confession and whatever else. But finally, I got to the point where I just had to admit, Lord, I know you're not hooking up with me on this. What am I doing wrong? And he spoke to me just as clearly as he could. He said, Mike, I've given you everything that your church needs to do the work that it needs to do. Now you find out from me what it is that I want done in the church and look around and find who you have within you already, within your congregation, that can take that on. And folks, from that moment till this, that's the last time I've looked to bring somebody in from the outside to do something we needed. Now let's analyze that a little bit. This was my thought process when he spoke to me. Really shocked me. Because I understood that he was saying, you don't need to hire somebody from the outside. You've got somebody inside to do the work, inside your church that already can do the work, so equipped for it. And that's why I don't look for people from the outside. But looking at it analytically, critically, what sense would it make for God to put on our hearts to do something to reach people, to help people in some way or another, and not provide us the people that can get it done? What sense would that make? I mean, if, if God wanted to frustrate somebody, that's the perfect way. Wouldn't it be frustrating for somebody to, to ascertain the will of God, identify and determine the will of God, and not have the means to bring it to pass? That's not the way God works. Now, we don't always see what's available to us, and I think this is true not just where church staff is concerned or was concerned for me, but I think this is the way that we operate as, as a general rule in our lives if we don't take precautions and speci- the specific steps to keep it from working this way or think it, keep us from thinking this way. So many times people are trying to fix their problems from the outside. Lord, I need more money. So they look for money to come from the outside when all the time they have access to, whether it's direction, whether it's an idea, whether it's work, the work of their hands or whatever, but all of us have access to every resource we'll ever need to do what God wants us to do. We couldn't be complete in him if we didn't. When it comes to direction, a lot of people are looking for somebody to give them wisdom, show them what they should do in that situation. But Paul wrote to the church in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30, he said, Christ has made unto you wisdom and righteousness and sanctification. Jesus has already made that to you. You've got it on the inside of you already. I think specifically that's what John's talking about in 1 John chapter 2, verses 20 and 27. You have an unction or an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. Well, folks, if we take that literally, if we understand that the Holy Ghost is saying to us, not that we already know things, there may be a lot of things we haven't realized yet or our, our eyes haven't been opened to yet, but if we realize that Jesus is the wisdom of God in us and God doesn't withhold wisdom from us in any situation, if we ask in faith according to James 1, if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavers is like a wave of the sea driven with the wind and tossed. A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. But if we understand that the wisdom that we have, the direction that we need, or whatever resource that's a part of the kingdom of God that helps us function and do God's will here on the earth is already inside of us, 
then we don't have to try to go to somebody else to get the answers. Is this making any sense? What else could be, in, could be meant by the phrase, you're complete in him? You are complete in him. Now turn back with me to John chapter 14. John chapter 14. Let me point some scriptures out to you that Jesus was talking about the Holy Ghost coming. Verse 15, John 14, verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not neither knoweth him. But you will know him for he dwelleth with you and shall be in you. Now stop and think about what he's saying. This is the same Holy Spirit, the same comforter, the same helper as many translations uh, speak to. The same one that he said you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. He's telling them the work of the Holy Ghost, or at least part of the work of the Holy Ghost. He'll guide you into all truth. He'll guide you into all truth. Well, the Word of God is truth, so we know that He guides us into the Word. Chapter 15, Jesus talks about the Holy Ghost bringing all things to their remembrance, whatsoever He said to them, and that refers to the Word of God as well. So we know that the Holy Ghost and the Word of God, the written Word, are always going to agree. The Bible's not going to tell you one thing, and the Holy Ghost tells you something else. But notice he says you'll have all the direction you ever need. He'll guide you into all truth. Not some truth, all truth. So whatever direction you need that, that uh, fits God's plan for your life today, the Holy Ghost is here to help you find that truth and guide you in it. And the same thing will be true for you 10 years from now and 20 years from now and 50 years from now. He'll guide you into all truth. He'll guide you into all truth. Now, the direction God has for you 40 years from now may be different than what he wants for you to do today. But the Holy Ghost will guide you into the truth of whatever it is at the point in time that you need it and look for him. He'll guide you into all truth. Another translation says he'll guide you into all reality. I like that too. He'll guide you into what's real. He'll guide you into what's provided for us, what's true. He'll do that through the word, and he'll also do that through the inward witness, bearing witness with your spirit, the Holy Ghost bearing witness with your spirit, by that inward witness to lead you and direct you. Let's keep reading what Jesus said about the Holy Ghost. He finishes up in verse 18 and says, I will not leave you comfortless. Well, the comforter will keep you from being without comfort. I will not leave you comfortless. Another translation says orphans. I will come unto you. Notice verse 26. He says, but the comforter, which is the Holy Ghost, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things. Now, there's no reason for us to assume that means literally everything that there is to know. But it specifically is referring to things that we need to know according to God's plan for us. Now, let's suppose that Jesus told us the truth. And, of course, we know that he did. But Jesus is telling us the truth by saying that the Holy Ghost will guide you into the reality of the things of God that belong to you. He'll guide you into the resources that that salvation and the baptism of the Holy Ghost is made available to you. He'll guide you into things Give you direction into the things that God has planned for your life. Now, if you come to the realization of what God has for you and what direction he wants you to go, wouldn't that cause the will of God to be done in your life here on the earth just like it is in heaven? Would that not be the kingdom of God operating in and through your life and in mine? We could just as easily say, take these words that Jesus said and paraphrase them by saying something along this line. When the comforter has come, he'll lead you into the will of God for your life. So that the kingdom of God can be manifested in you here and now on the earth, just like it will be in heaven. I've made this statement before when we talked about this point. I have not yet, after pastoring the church for 31 years and ministering for several years before that, 
I have not come yet to a place where somebody said, Pastor Mike, I need to know if it's the will of God in heaven for people to be healed. People don't question the will of God in heaven. But they have a lot of questions about the will of God here. Well, the will of God is the same here as it is in heaven. And when you look at what things are like in heaven, the little bit of information we have in heaven about heaven, then we realize that God doesn't want anything to hurt or harm or hinder or create a problem for us here on the earth any more than he wants it to happen in heaven. Now, what's the difference? In heaven, there's no evil spirits. There are no enemies working against anybody trying to hinder the will of God from coming to pass in our lives. Here we have an enemy. But the good news is we've overcome that enemy by the greater one, the one Jesus said he'd send us from the Father. Look at chapter 15. John chapter 15, Jesus said in verse 26, But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even the Spirit of truth which, will, which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. Now, why would the Holy Ghost want to testify of Jesus? Or maybe a better question is, how is the Holy Ghost going to testify of Jesus? It's got to be through people. The Holy Ghost is here to give us direction and give us unction. He gives us unction to speak in other tongues when we pray, and he gives us unction to speak in a known language, our known language, to help others find the Lord. So when he says the Holy Ghost will testify of me, he's got to be talking about the Holy Ghost giving us utterance and or direction in many cases to know who to talk to and what to tell them so that they can find Jesus like we did. What else could it be? That would be bringing the will of God to pass on the earth just like it is in heaven, wouldn't it? Look at chapter 16. Uh, let's see. Let's start in verse 4. But these things have I told you that when the time shall come, you may remember that I told you of them. And these things I said unto you, said not unto you at the beginning because I was with you. But now I go my way to, the, uh, to him that sent me and none of you ask me where I'm going. But because I have said these things unto you that he's going away, but because I've said that I was going away unto you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient. The word expedient means helpful or beneficial. It's better for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Now, notice he's saying, it's better for you that I go away. Now, in my thinking, in my experience with people, that's completely opposite from what most people think. Most people think if we could have been alive and here on the earth when Jesus was here, wouldn't that have been wonderful? We could have seen the loaves and the fishes multiplied. We could have seen Jesus walking on the water. We could have seen all the healing miracles and all the other stuff that Jesus did. <clears throat> if we needed healing, all we'd have to do is get to him, touch him. And the healing power of God would be ministered unto us. But Jesus is saying it's just the other way around. He's saying it's better for you that I go away so that I can give you the comforter to live and abide in you. Now, folks, think about what would have to be the case. <coughs> the truth of the matter. For it to be true that it's better for us for the Holy Ghost to be in us. Than to be with Jesus walking with him every day. Physically. What makes the Holy Ghost in us better than Jesus with us in physical form, natural form? Well, the Holy Ghost in us is what's made us complete in him. See, Jesus was their source for everything that they needed. He was the one they came to with their questions. He was the one they looked to to make sure they had enough food for their journeys and whatever else they were doing with him. He was the one that was responsible for all of them for three years. But he said, it's better for you to have the Holy Ghost and be blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places and have all the resources from heaven that you'll ever need for anything that you seek to do for God. He said, that's a better place to be. 
Well, then the power of the Holy Ghost must be a lot more than most of us are taking advantage of. Wouldn't you agree? Let's keep reading. When he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin because they believe not on me. That's the only sin that sends anybody to hell. Rejecting Jesus. That's it. Of righteousness because I go unto my Father. And I believe he's addressing that to the believers. Why would the world care about righteousness? And you see me no more of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. Now notice that. He's talking about judgment. The Holy Ghost showing us, revealing to us about the judgment that came on the prince of this world, which is certainly talking about Satan. The Bible says Satan is the prince of the power of the air. So he's saying that the prince of this world is judged, not going to be judged. He's not looking to that day where Satan is thrown into the bottomless pit for a thousand years. He's talking about in his time. It's another way that, of saying what Paul said in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 15. Jesus spoiled principalities and powers and made an open show of them. He spoiled principalities and powers. His death, his burial, his resurrection. Spoiled, dethroned, paralyzed the work of the devil. And the Holy Ghost is given unto us to overcome his operations and his influence in the earth. Because greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Certainly you see how those scriptures fit together. Certainly you see how Jesus is saying the same thing just in different terms. Verse 12 he says, I have yet many things to say unto you, but you cannot bear them now. That implies that he wants us to grow up so that we can take more in. Howbeit when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak. And he will show you things to come. He will show you things to come. Folks, I want you to understand something. If the Bible is true where it says we're complete in him, and if Jesus told us the truth about what the Holy Ghost would do, he is saying that we have within us all the resources we need for the future. And he'll even show us the future to come. Too often people are looking on the outside for God to help them. Oh, Lord, heal me. Send healing power from heaven in some visible, visible way or physical way so that I can feel it, touch me, and then I'll know. That's not how it works. The Bible says God sent his word and healed them. Well, you can't see the word physically or on the outside other than the words on the page. It's when the word starts doing something in you that it makes a difference. Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 20 said, My words are life unto those that find them and, and health to all their flesh. Please realize what that's saying. It's saying there's a finding process to the word of God. There's a finding process or a searching process to find the word of God so that it can be effective in the means which God intended for it to be. See, for that reason, I look at the word critically. I'm looking at the reasons why the Bible says what it says. I'm looking for the reasons why the Holy Ghost inspired the writers in the New Testament to, to say what they or to write what they did to the church and to give us information. I think that it's helpful when we look at the word critically to understand what's going on and why. Well, along that vein, we see that the Holy Ghost is the greater one. We see he's the one that puts us over. We see that he's the power of God operating here in the, in the earth. Watching over the word of God to perform it in our lives when we put it in practice. But why would the Holy Ghost give us record in the book of Acts about Jesus telling them to wait for power. Acts chapter 1 verse 8 again. But you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And then what we see of the Holy Ghost. In each of the five examples. Or times. Places. That the Holy Ghost was poured out upon an individual or a group of people. Every time whether implied or specified. Every time. 
The manifestation of the infilling of the Holy Ghost is speaking with other tongues. Why? Why didn't the Bible skip chapter chapter 2, verse 4, and they were all filled with the Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance? Why didn't it skip that and go straight to chapter 3 and tell us about the blind man, or the, I'm sorry, the cripple at the beautiful gate being healed? That's power, isn't it? That's the kind of power we're looking for that's associated with the Holy Ghost. So why tongues? Why is that so important that the Holy Ghost gives us record, either directly or indirectly, every time somebody is filled or baptized with the Spirit? How come? We see what Jesus said that the Holy Ghost would do for us. Paul helped us a little bit further in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, where he talks about he that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifies himself or spiritually strengthens himself, charges himself up, recharges himself up like you would a battery. We understand that benefit of speaking in tongues. But why does the Bible make such an issue of speaking with tongues? Why does it show us again and again and again and again and again? Turn with me to Romans chapter 8. I touched on this last week, but I want to go a little bit further. Verse 26, it says, Likewise, the Spirit also, talking about the Holy Spirit, likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. The word infirmities means weakness. It doesn't mean sickness. Very seldom is this word used in the New Testament to refer to sickness. It's talking about a weakness. If I walk into the weight room and put 200 pounds on some barbell and try to lift it up and can't, that doesn't mean I'm defective. It just means I'm weak against that weight. Well, there's something I can do about that weakness, isn't there? I can get my lazy rear end into the gym and work out more. And I might specifically work on whatever muscles would be necessary for me to lift that weight in that particular manner. It's a weakness. It's not a defect. It's not a sickness. It's a weakness. So this is what he's talking about. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. He didn't say we don't know what to pray for. He's saying we don't know what to pray for like we ought to know what to pray for. And very few situations, unless they pertain to us and only us, do we have all the information of the facts related to the situation? So we don't know how to pray. This is one of the things that um, that happen very frequently. Somebody will bring a prayer request to the church and want the church to pray for their healing or lay hands on a cloth to take to them for the, to receive their healing or whatever. And they'll just come and say, my friend, my neighbor, my loved one, whatever, whoever it might be, has been diagnosed with such and such a disease. Let's pray for them to be healed. Well, what do we pray? Do they believe anything? If they do believe something, especially if they believe something about healing, then that means the prayer that we pray is a whole lot different than one that if we don't know what their state of belief or unbelief is. And normally what we do is we try to appease people and we just say, well, okay, Father, bring healing to sister so-and-so or whoever it is that's on the prayer request. And that's basically saying, Lord, do what you can but we'd be a lot more effective if we knew what the situation was in their heart or from their heart so that we could hook up with them. Because one thing's for sure, if we get to church, no matter how many of us there are together in agreement, if we're believing for somebody to be healed and they don't believe that healing is from God, they're not going to be healed. Their faith is what counts, not ours. Now, that's just a simple illustration showing us how we're weak in our understanding and our knowledge many times about what to pray for. But Paul is using a general sense, using this as a principle, to say when you don't know how to pray as you ought about any situation, yourself or whoever, here's the way that it works. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. Here's the helper, the comforter. He's going to help us in our infirmities, in the weakness that's created by us not knowing things as we ought to know whether it's about somebody else or whether it's about the plan and the purpose of God or whatever the case might be. 
For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. P.C. Nelson said that this word groanings most specifically and literally means God talk. He helps our infirmities with God talk. Now, what would God talk be? It would be a means to pray given to us by the Holy Ghost. Well, Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he that prays in an unknown tongue edifies himself. He said, he that prays in an unknown tongue speaketh not unto men, but unto, unto God, for no man understandeth him. Howbeit in the spirit, he speaks mysteries or secrets, divine secrets, Wayman's translation says. In the spirit, we speak divine secrets. Well, what's a divine secret? It's something we don't know about. Now, if we knew what divine secret we were praying for at any period of time that we speak in other tongues, we could just stop right there and hook up with our mind and pray according to our understanding, couldn't we? If the divine secrets were revealed to us by the Holy Ghost, then all of a sudden we'd know what we need to pray for or how to pray, and we could just start doing it anytime we wanted to. But we know that's not the way it works. We know that the divine secrets are prayed only when we yield ourselves to the unction of the Holy Ghost, to the utterance of the Holy Ghost, to speak and or to pray in other, in other tongues. Right? So what's the divine secret? What's the divine utterance? They're words that our mind doesn't know, that don't come from our mind but come directly from our spirits where the Holy Ghost lives. And our responsibility is to speak those words out as he gives us utterance. Now, this is all about the Holy Ghost functioning in his work as the helper. Likewise, he helpeth. The comforter is also translated the helper in other places in the verses in John that we read. Likewise, the spirit also helpeth our infirmities, for we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. One translation says which cannot be uttered in articulate speech. He's talking about can't be uttered in your known language. They can only be uttered in other tongues. And he that searches the hearts, God, who searches our hearts, knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because he, the Spirit, maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. So Paul is telling us very specifically that whenever we pray in other tongues, we're praying according to the will of God. You cannot pray in other tongues against the will of God. Because it's the Holy Ghost giving you utterance to speak whatever words we're saying in other tongues. And the words he would speak always are in line with the, the will of the Father. Always. So the Holy Ghost makes intercession for us with groanings or God talk or utterance in other tongues. That's always in line with the will of God. Now notice verse 28. And we know. Well, I wish the church knew this. Paul knew and Paul was telling us. And we certainly can know if we accept the scripture for what it says. But he says, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God and to them that are called according to his purpose. Maybe we should read the rest. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, what were we predestined for? We were predestined to be born again. We were predestined to live Jesus' life here on the earth. That's what conformed to his image means. We were predestined to be part of God's family. Now, who was predestined for that? The Bible says Jesus died for the sins of the world. The Bible couldn't say that Jesus died for the sins of the world unless it was the will of God for all the world to be saved. It didn't say that he died for the sins of the righteous to be exonerated or removed. No, he died for the world. So who's predestined to come into the family of God? God predestined that everybody should be part of his family. And Jesus told us 
that it was according to the will of man. He said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man will open unto me, I will come in and sup with him. Live with him, in other words. Fellowship with him. So whose will is is the determining factor for salvation? Is it God's? No, God will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul wrote to Timothy. So it's not God's will that's that's at risk here or at work. God performed his will when he sent Jesus to die for everybody's sins. It's our will that makes the difference. It's what we will to receive. It's what we will have or will to have. So back to verse 28. A lot of people use the predestination idea in verse, uh, what is it, 29, 30, whatever it is. Many people use the predestination idea to come up with the thought that God's controlling everything, that he's running the show in every respect. He's doing things great and small to arrange the world in the way that he wants it to be. Well, if that's the case, the Holy Ghost didn't seem to know that. Because the Holy Ghost talked about the work of evil in many places. It talked about the work of evil done in the world. So they assume that verse 28 means that no matter what happens, whether it's tragedy, whether it's sickness, whether it's death, no matter what it is, God's using it to work things out for good. But folks, the context where Paul said, and we know that all things work together for good then for the good of them that are called according to his purpose. Paul is saying things work out for our good when we pray in the Holy Ghost. When we pray in other tongues, when we yield to the utterance that the Holy Ghost gives us to help our infirmities. That's when things work out for our good. Why? Because we've been praying the will of God. We usually don't know what we're praying about, but we're praying by the unction or the utterance of the Spirit of God, and the Spirit of God cannot lead us to to pray in anything other than the will of God. And when we yield to that, when we yield to those groanings which cannot be uttered in articulate speech, when we speak those divine secrets in other tongues, that's when God works all things together for our good because we've just been praying in the Holy Ghost. We've been praying the will of God. Sure, we're predestined. Everybody's predestined to come into the family of God. Everybody's price was paid. But it's up to us to pray. Now, here's the point I want you to see, folks. I want you to see that this is what Paul says is the means of access to the help of the Holy Ghost. I'm going to read to you from John 14, verse 16. Again, it's one of the scriptures we looked at, but I'm going to read it to you from the Amplified Version. Jesus said, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another comforter. Now, the Amplified points out what the different uh, names or attributes or characteristics are for the Greek word paraclete, which is translated comforter. He will give you another comforter. He's our counselor. He's our helper. He's our intercessor. He's our advocate. He's our strengthener and he's our standby and he'll remain with us forever. So here's the point I want you to see. The reason that the Holy Ghost makes such an issue in the book of Acts, every time somebody or individual or a group of people are filled with the spirit, they either, uh, either specifically says, usually specifically says that they began to speak in other tongues, magnify God or prophesy in some situations. And then, The other time, the one time, it's implied with Paul. Paul was filled with the Holy Ghost when Ananias laid hands on him. That's why he said he was there. The Lord sent me, Jesus, that you met in the way to Damascus, has sent me that you might restore your sight, receive your sight rather, and be filled with the Holy Ghost. Well, the Bible doesn't say anything in Acts chapter 9 about Paul speaking in other tongues. But Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians What is it, verse 17, 18, somewhere around there, where Paul said, I thank my God I speak with tongues more than you all. So Paul identifies that he speaks with tongues. So we're left to figure out at what point in time did he begin to speak with other tongues. And there is absolutely no reason to discount the pattern 
that the Holy Ghost sets out in four other occasions where people were filled with the Spirit and began to speak with other tongues. So if you want the Holy Ghost help in counsel, if you want to access the Holy Ghost help, like Jesus said, if we want to walk in the fullness of what being complete in him really means, if we want to take access or take possession of those heavenly blessings, spiritual blessings in heavenly places that we've been given and granted, how do we access the help of the Holy Ghost for that? The only one way that the Bible says you can. That's by speaking in other tongues. You want the counselor's help? Speak in other tongues. You want the helper's help? Speak in other tongues. You want the intercessor's help? Speak in other tongues. You want the advocate's help? Speak in other tongues. You want the strengthener, the strength of the strengthener in your life? Speak in other tongues. You want the standby to go to work on your behalf? Speak in other tongues. What happens when we do? God changes us. God's not out working in the circumstances apart from or independent of us. Something changes in us. We gain a boldness that we might not have had before. A strengthening in faith. So that we can take authority over whatever the issue is and whatever is bothering us. And see God's word bring it to pass. I think too much of the church is spending too much time, wasting too much time looking for God to do something on the outside when the kingdom of God and all of its blessings and all of its benefits are inside us. I want to access those, don't you? How do we do that? The only principle and the only method that the Holy Ghost saw fit to give us is the example that Paul gives in Romans chapter 8. He helps our infirmities. He'll help you in your counsel. He'll help you in strength. He'll help you in any and every way that you need by giving us utterance, groanings, God talk, which is speaking in other tongues. It's the only means to access the Holy Ghost help. Now, here's, one, here's something I want you to consider. We'll close with this. You remember Paul wrote to the Corinthians and he said he talked about the thorn in the flesh. He talked about there was a thorn in the flesh that was given unto him. And he identifies that it was the messenger of Satan. So it was something that Satan was doing against him, not God. He identifies it as a personality. The word that he uses that's translated in the King James messenger is the Greek word angelos. It's used 181 times in the New Testament. 184 of them is translated angel. Seven times it's translated messenger. He clearly identifies that it's persecution. He clearly identifies that Satan is trying to hinder him by persecuting him and trying to take his life and so forth. He's just given us a big long list in the previous chapter. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, I I guess it is. He's given us a big long list telling about all the problems that he has and sickness is not one of the things on the list. He talks about persecution. He talks about being beaten. He talks about being shipwrecked, being in prison. And so forth. He goes to great lengths to show us things that are all the result of persecution. And he says, I besought the Lord three times for this to depart from me. Paul is praying. And he prays three times. I'm shocked at the fact that he makes mention of the fact that he prayed three times. It's almost like he's saying, I was really serious about this. I prayed three times. Well, folks, I don't know many of us that don't pray about something three times. Or a lot more than that. Paul seems to be implying, and you judge this for yourself. I don't know for certain that this is the case, but it speaks to me that Paul is saying, I don't usually have to pray for anything more than once. But in this case, I prayed three times over a many year period of time that this individual, this personality, this work of the devil against me to try to stop and hinder the work of God. I prayed three times that this would be taken from me. And Jesus responded and said, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. Paul didn't seem to understand at the time. He certainly got it later. He wrote it to us in letters. But he didn't seem to understand at the time 
that the redemptive work of Jesus does not save you from persecution. Jesus said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Paul goes on to say in a later letter that he writes to the church, he said, those that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Well, he's found that out firsthand. We're not redeemed from persecution. If it was sickness, which he doesn't say that it is, then that would be something he could claim as a right because of Jesus' sacrifice. But there's no deliverance from persecution or redemption from persecution that's made mention of in the Scripture. So Paul says, Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities. Now Paul's going to talk about a weakness that he has. Most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities, my weaknesses. Now the weaknesses he's talking about must be the results from these persecution, beatings, imprisonments, shipwrecked, and so on and so forth. All the other things that he makes mention of. It's got to be that. Otherwise, there'd be no point in giving us the list. So he said, most gladly, therefore, will I glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For when I am weak, then am I strong. Now, where does the power of Christ come from to help us? That's part of the work of the Holy Ghost. So Paul is saying, I learned that the way to handle persecution against me and against my ministry, I learned that the way to handle that was to get the help of the Holy Ghost to strengthen me. The help of the Holy Ghost. Well, Jesus said he'd be our helper. He said specifically that he'd be our strengthener. Why do you think that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 4 and said, He that speaketh in an unknown tongue edifies himself. How did he find that out? Jesus certainly didn't tell him. Jesus said, you'll receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you'll be witnesses. And that would certainly fit Paul's description. That's the work God has for him to do. But how did Paul specifically find out that speaking in other tongues strengthens you or recharges you spiritually? Could it be that when Paul writes to the church in Corinth and says, I thank my God I speak in tongues more than you all. Could it be that he was either led of the Holy Ghost or stumbled up on it on his own? And he found out that the way to deal with the hindrances that he faced in ministry and all the terrible things that he talked about. Is it possible that he found out that he had strength or the power of Christ would rest upon him to overcome, meaning defeat or outlast the persecution and fulfill God's plan for him and his ministry on the earth. He identifies that speaking in tongues is the way to gain strength. So when he says about his own situation, I most gladly therefore will glory in my infirmity so that the power of Christ can rest upon me. If there's some power of Christ that can rest upon us that's other than what Jesus said would come because the comforter has sent, then we have no record of it. You want the help of the Holy Ghost? Pray in tongues. You want counsel from God? Pray in tongues. You want strength from heaven? Pray in tongues. You want God to defend you as your advocate? Pray in tongues. You want the help that Jesus sent us from heaven? Pray in other tongues. It's the only means, it's the only principle. That's given to us in the Bible. And I think that's the very reason that that, uh, Romans chapter 8 is given to us. Because Paul is giving us a concrete example of how the Holy Ghost makes up the difference for us with something that we don't have or something we don't know. He gives us utterance in other tongues. And that releases the power of God into your situation. It works every time. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the helper, the mighty one who has been sent to be our teacher and our guide, our standby, 
We thank you, Father, in Jesus' precious and holy name. That as we speak in other tongues, the power of God comes to work in our life. You strengthen us. You help us. You stand by us. You give us counsel and direction. So that we can stand and walk in the authority that you've given to us. When you strip Satan of everything that he had. And then we can walk in our authority. And accomplish your will and your plan and your purpose here on the earth. We have overcome him. Because of the greater one inside. We have overcome the evil one. Because we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. It is better for us Jesus to have the Holy Ghost within us. Than to have you in physical form with us. And we thank you Father that every time we speak in tongues. Every time we pray. By the unction and the utterance of the Spirit of God. It strengthens us. It settles us. It brings the peace of God to bear in our lives and in our situations. And it shows us your plan and your purpose for our lives. Thank you, Holy Spirit, the mighty one, the greater one that puts us over every time. We love you, Father. We thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Well, let's all stand. I could have started this service off by just saying, folks, you need to pray in tongues. Thank God for the record that we have in Scripture of how it works and why. The greater one's on your side. The greater one's working for you. He doesn't do the work, let you off the hook, but he'll help you when you stand. Amen? God bless you. Have a great week. See you Sunday.